So hi everyone and welcome to another BSSH Sport in History podcast. I'm Connor Heffernan doing this from across the pond uh, back again and I'm really excited to be speaking with Shannon Walsh. Today Shannon is Associate Professor of Theatre History at LSU. She's an artist and a scholar and she's just published a wonderful book entitled Eugenics and Physical Culture Performance in the Progressive Era Watch Whiteness Workout. So I'll start by just saying thank you to Shannon for taking time out. And maybe if you could just give people an introduction as to who you are, the type of research you do, and then what the book is all about. Oh, sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, so um, I think, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm coming primarily out of theater, um, but I have done so much work um, interdisciplinarily in terms of um, sports history and the scholars that um, I'm kind of putting this book in conversation uh, with, uh, but is it, I'm a theater person, so I act, <laughs> um, I direct, uh, and um, I'm also a mom um, and a dog mom. Um, so the pandemic has made all of those things smushed together in, into one terrible, wonderful place. Um, so uh, I work primarily in, uh, at least my research, like I teach primarily in theater history. Um, so the, the courses I teach for students are primarily like, all right, we're gonna learn about theater from 1875 to now. Um, I specialize in gender, sexuality, race, um, and the sort of intersections of, of identity politics, um, critical race theory, um, gender theory, um, queer theory in, in terms of theater and performance. My research though is primarily in performance studies. So, right, taking a, a, a lens of performance um, and applying it to places that aren't traditionally considered performance. So, um, you know, my interest really in sports as, as performance is in part because um, I'm, I'm a wild sports fan. I grew up in, in Colorado. And if you were not a Denver Bronco, right, so American football fan um, of the Denver Broncos, um, nobody would talk to you. So, uh, you know, loved being a fan. Um, I didn't really play sports, uh, but I, I loved it. And by the time I got to my master's and I was watching all these sports and I'm married to a, a, a sports jock uh, who has played every sport under the sun. Um, and, uh, I was just frustrated because women, right when I was writing my master's thesis, women had finally sort of made it to the sidelines of, of the national football league and, um, were, you know, being able to sort of comment on the action. Um, but they were dressed in these ridiculous high heels and pastels and, um, like hyper feminized. Uh, uh, and so my master's thesis was actually on sort of the performance of femininity in, in these mediatized representations of women and how the male gaze functioned in live sports um, coverage. And um, I had to fight. I, I had to fight really hard in my, in my you know, theater program to be like, this is absolutely about performance. Um, so interestingly, as a, as a graduate student, PhD student, um, I was actually going to write about fan cultures. That was going to be my um, area of emphasis. And I was going to look at how fan cultures dealt with things like gender, race, and sexuality. Um, and what actually ended up happening and, and sort of where this, this book uh, sort of emerged was that uh, uh, as a, a student of history and historiography and historical research, I found a YWCA 
uh, archive on campus for a class and found um, Abby Mayhew, who is the subject of my third chapter, who in like 1893, in what at the time was the sort of frontier town of, of Minneapolis, um, was, was doing these wild, at the time, just wild sort of physical culture exhibitions and, you know, having women play basketball in public. And uh, uh, I was like, this is, this is, this is wild. How is this, how is this possible? And so from there, I sort of traced her genealogy a little bit and, and stumbled on Dudley Allen Sargent. Um, and then in sort of researching Dudley Allen Sargent at, at Harvard, um, ran across Physical Culture Magazine and was like, this is the craziest publication I have ever, ever seen. Like, how do you, how do I not make the entire dissertation of, uh, about this? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, from there just, you know, found, found the Stark Center and um, it had just opened. I was their first researcher. It was crazy as like this geeky, like PhD student, um, you know, coming to the Stark Center, which is so beautiful and amazing. And I tell everybody, you know, I've now gone to like all these different sports archives and the Stark Center is just my favorite. Um, uh, uh, and then, you know, trying to decide what, what this would be after it was a dissertation. And for me, um, one of the nagging things was I loved Abby Mayhew uh, and this sort of like, ooh, this feminist, she's having women ride bikes and do crazy things. Um, and what I found in so much of their rhetoric was this return call to race um, and sort of racial health and, and fitness um, that really prevented me from sort of putting all of these people up on, a, on the pedestal that my historian heart really wanted to, to kind of put them on. Um, and, and I had a, a member of my committee um, when I was defending be like, you know, I really think that this is so much more about race um, than, than you think it is. Um, and so that, that really became the pivot point. And it's crazy because I, you know, whiteness became sort of central to it. And over the past years, I've had to rewrite the introduction so many times because the conception of, of whiteness in the US has just been shifting. And so this constant like, okay, well now whiteness isn't invisible anymore, it's central. So how, how do I reframe um, looking back at this um, with this new sort of ideology that we have? Yeah, and I think um, at some point my dogs are gonna come in as well, so don't worry. But I think for, for me, one thing that was so interesting is how you show how these race ideas are both, you know, textual and discourse. So people talking about it, people writing about it, but then the repetition linked in with the actual movement of the body. Because I think in terms of the study of physical culture, and I'm guilty of this as well, like a lot of us say, well, this is related to masculinity or femininity, or there was a race crisis. And we talk about, you know, people like Dudley Allen Sargent, Bernard McFadden, measuring white male and female bodies and trying to find the perfect body and perfecting the body through um, exercise but I think one of the really like so nerdy one of the thrilling things to me about your book was looking at how the repetition of movement and the repetition of exercise links in then with those ideas you know about what is an ideal white male or female body and I think one of the blind spots that sport history has and we'll pick up on this as well because you 
kind of mention it slightly somewhere in the book is we don't focus enough on the performance element, which is a really strange, it's a really strange blind spot that we tend to focus um, in passing on the actual performative element and what that means. So I'm wondering, could you expand on like, how do you study the kind of interplay between movement and text in the way that you did? Because it's something that like my Luddite kind of historical brain, I find it really exciting, but hard to do. And it's one of the really amazing things about performance studies is I think the discipline has a much greater grasp on that interplay between actual life and movement and then those broader ideas. Yeah, that's, I, oh, I love this question. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's, and, and it's so interesting because it makes me actually think about the first time that I went to the um, uh, North American Sports History Conference um, uh, and, and what, right, so, so for performance scholars, I mean, uh, uh, performativity and things like the way in which gender is performative and constructed and race and and all of those things we get we get to that place of, of sort of it's socially constructed which I think across the humanities is kind of the 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 for the the place that we're at these things are of course socially constructed one of the things that performance studies really digs into is yeah but but how so so how do these performances shift on bodies and become acceptable or not acceptable sort of over time. Um, and we talk so much in performance about how race is performative, but because whiteness is such a default and has been a default for, for such a long time and kind of obscured under, as, as I argue, the, the mantle of universality um, that um, there isn't a whole lot about how whiteness is performed until very recently, now we're talking about that a lot, uh, uh, and how it sort of sinks into to the bones and the muscles, which is absolutely about physical culture. And I thought about that the myself trying to, as I was writing my dissertation, I was um, I had two kids, so I was pregnant while I was sort of finishing my PhD program and the kind of like yoga classes that I was going to where I was just constantly like, why this is such a, this is so white. Everybody here is so white. Like this is such a white practice, it's not. Um, and so I kept hitting these places of, of like, you know, uh, where I start in the book is like, so what the heck, why is this fitness so white, which then made me go out and kind of try and find places where, where it wasn't. And, and historically, um, man, there just really aren't. Um, um, that especially in terms of the ability and, and impetus to work on one's body, um, um, that that was such a, a, an entrenched kind of white phenomenon. And then, and, and it's in, to go back to the, you know, the, the Nash conference, what, I found so interesting is that one, eugenics is in all of these books, right? All, all of the sort of major foundational texts about this time all talk about how this was kind of racially motivated. It's not that it's a, a blind spot, but that's kind of it, right? It's like mentioned like, and of course this was linked to eugenics. Um, uh, but the other thing that I, found so interesting about Nash is that so many of the conversations that I heard happening there were rooted in that scholar's own position as a former practitioner, 
which we're always really cognizant of in theater. Like, right, are, are you an actor? Like, what position are you speaking from? And to hear these sports scholars be like, well, do you really know what it was like to try and be a quarterback? Because let me tell you the effect that it has on your body. And so there was this kind of um, clout that came with being a scholar who was a former athlete. Mm. Um, which to me is all about speaking from that place of experience. Like I can talk about this because not only do I know like the history side, but like if you're going to talk about it, you have to know what it felt like um, and what that felt like in your body um, um, while also then not actually dwelling on that place of, of like, well, this is what it felt like in my body. It was just like, as a former practitioner, as a former quarterback or a former this, um, I can tell you um, that that's not how that works. Yeah, and I think that's such an interesting point to make because I think sport history more so thankfully than other parts of history. Like if you were studying war, I would be very reticent about someone being, let me tell you what dropping a bomb on someone feels like. Um, although I'm sure that he or her could be a fantastic historian but I think it's interesting about sport it's many people come to it through that lived experience but I think in the writing of sport I think sometimes we're uncomfortable with kind of branching out and injecting ourselves into the text but also injecting what performance actually means because there's a there's a risk of being quite dry and being quite you know quote-unquote objective whatever that means and I was just reading the book I think you did such a wonderful job of showing like the vibrancy of these ideas and debates because you know when Bernard McFadden is writing on racial fitness and my goodness he has physical culture exhibitions where he has white male bodies and white female bodies and they're um, you know competing against one another in a physique competition but there's also wrestling and foot races and bicycle races and like performance is what sells these ideas as well because you can point to a Eugen Sander and you can see him pose and flex his muscles and say like that, that is, you know, ideal white masculinity or whatever the case may be. So I'm just wondering how difficult was it or was it a difficult leap coming from performance studies to inject the, you know, the lived experience of these people or the lived movement of these people with the debates and ideas? Because I think you navigated that line very well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but also like, if anybody knew the importance of performance, it was Bernard McFadden. Like, like he knew exactly, he was like the P.T. Barnum of, of physical culture, right? Like he, he got that um, in order to sell these things, you had to put up bodies that look naked all over, you know, New York City. <laughs> and then you would get the audience that, that you wanted. And he was so... Um, right, meticulous about how he presented himself, the way in which, I mean, originally what I really wanted that chapter to be about was the way that he sort of dramaturged his family, that, that he sort of made his family into this sort of utopic vision of the ultimate outcome of, of his courses of physical culture. Um, what's hard is that um, archivally, right, there's just, it's hard to find, like, you know, his, his, his ex-wife uh, talks about doing, a, the, what I really wanted to write about is that she tells this story of him forcing her to jump off a pier at Brighton Beach into the ocean when she's like nine months pregnant in order to demonstrate 
like this amazing fitness and man, I could not, other than her retelling of it, I could find <laughs> no primary sources that, that talked about that at all, right? Because he got that it was about people seeing a visibly pregnant woman sort of do the exact opposite of what was happening for pregnant women, women at that time, which was that they would convalesce still. Um, um, and, and, you know, like he, he got it. Yeah. He, and I, I share your frustration in trying to find that story. I also read like for people who don't know too much about the history of physical culture, this is like one of the best tell all biographies, dumbbells and carrot strips where, I mean, there are so many weird and wonderful stories, but as you say, rightly, Shannon, like Bernard McFadden just seemed to tap into this idea that, you know, the medical professionals, politicians and journalists are telling us anyway that racial fitness and racial survival for white male and female bodies is important. But he marries it with that P.T. Barnum celebration circus, a time like freakish elements of physical fitness. And it's such an interesting way in terms of reading it and reading about it to see how scientific ideas and medical ideas can then become like bastardized or transmuted into the public sphere through these like very eccentric um, people. And I think in the book, I keep returning to it because there's so many different avenues that you go down there. So fascinating, but you marry it so well with current fitness. Like I think, you know, in the closing point, you talk about like say CrossFit and different elements in fitness today. So I think you've shown, and the book does a great job in showing that Yes, these things are historically rooted in the 1800s, but they actually still exist today because in different guises. And I think reading it, part of the strength from that came from the fact that you can impress people through moving bodies and through you know images of pregnant women lifting weights or pregnant women jumping off into a pier. Um, so I think that was something that was just quite interesting. I'm wondering how difficult was it for you to kind of, I'm trying to say, like shut down into a specific time period because obviously the majority of the book is about kind of the um, the progressive era, but so much of these discourses and ideas still exist today. So I'm wondering, was was that a real challenge in terms of actually grounding it in a time period? Because you could have continued on 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, because so many of the ideas and the techniques seem to still exist. Well, and that, and that was the thing, right? Is that once, once that you, because also, right, eugenics wasn't even really at its peak at all in the progressive era. It was really sort of in that in-between place, sort of leading up to World War One and into World War Two. obviously that, you know, eugenics really hit. And so trying to find specific eugenic references in 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 the in the primary resources was was difficult and so without expanding it into the 20s and 30s um uh uh but also that's like a whole other can of worms um because by then you know you have this um uh, huge sort of publishing empire in terms of magazines in terms of you know uh, uh government sponsored sort of health care and health initiatives um uh that was daunting for me <laughs> to sort of sit there and be like no i'd have to write an entire other book about about sort of the 20s 30s and, and 40s and that to a certain extent what 
what I was finding in the work about the progressive era and about the sort of late 19th century was this narrative of, um, you know, primarily like, oh my gosh, look at what pioneers um, these folks were. Um, they, you know, they were right there at the origins of, of the, the kind of disciplinization of, of, of sports, of physical education, um, and, and dance, like, like, right, we wouldn't have theater departments if we hadn't had PE departments. Um, uh, and, and that to me, um, was where one of the red flags was, was this like, let's link, you know, sort of the first wave of feminism with this, uh, a push for women's sports in colleges. And, and, um, again, that like, it's so easy to be like, yes, this is so awesome. And it is so awesome, but it was also about making these white ladies stronger <laughs> and, and so that they could have kids, not so that they could necessarily, you know, have jobs or become athletes. That was not, um, uh, the, the end of it. And it's not that that, you know, that is obviously pointed to, um, sort of in the, in the work as well. Um, but I, I think the place that for me, I had this particular moment where I was looking at a, an exercise out of the sergeant handbook, um, and it was the woodchop squat. And then I was, um, uh, I, at the time was sort of doing at home fitness. Cause I, cause of course I was, um, and I found the exact same sort of contemporary version of it in like this video. And I was like, oh my gosh, the squat was the woodchop squat. Like we are still doing all of these wild exercises like in PE classes, in, in sort of home exercise routines, um, but, but we have disconnected them from the fact that we're still doing these exercises that were created like hundreds and hundreds of, of years ago, which on, on, on well, hundred years ago, um, which on the one hand is like, wow, like what works, what work is what works. Um, but on the other hand, um, that's really, wild there are so many other disciplines where if we said yeah we're going to take this idea from 50 years ago and basically not change it and still do it um that you would be like no that's a really terrible idea and the fact that especially in something like crossfit crossfit sort of made part of its hipness about going back to these old exercises, about going back to these sort of functional um, exercises that were not about equipment, that were all about sort of, you know, high intensity impact training that you could do with a tire or a hammer. Um, and, and that is where I was like, that's so dangerous. <laughs> We don't, we don't want to go back to those because those that that's grounded in this kind of idea about how about white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, part of that regular return to like, what are the stakes of this now is, is about like, you know, so many of our other systems, um, you know, physical education was born out of a place of an assumption of white superiority and polishing that white superiority into supremacy um, in a way that's really dangerous and has stuck around and still makes it difficult for BIPOC athletes um, to, to, to sort of bust into the fitness realm and that that's changing rapidly now, thank goodness. 
Um, you know, but I, I think I was hard pressed to sort of think of uh, going back through the decades, you know, um, uh, uh, exercise shows or magazines that featured um, people of color. Yeah, and I think it's such an important point to make that the history of physical culture, and again, I'm guilty of this in various guises, tends to focus on the celebratory aspects of these origins, like, oh my God, this is, oh my goodness, this is amazing. You know, more and more men and women are going to the gym, or this is amazing. Women can now exercise or women can now play sport, you know, and then there's almost a caveat. Well, obviously this is related to restrictive forms of masculinity or restrictive forms of race. I think the book is just so interesting because it, like, it, it won't let you get away from the fact that this is so, and I mean this in the best possible way, so intimately connected with race because the history of health and fitness cultures, you know, as historians have written in various guises over the 1900s and 2000s, is they've linked it to, well, this is great, but you know, they use it in the military for rather restrictive meanings. This is great, but African-American, Black and Latin or Hispanic, say fitness personalities, are effectively a non-entity until the 60s or 70s. And even going to like the early 1900s, which people say, well, this is when fitness is born, quote unquote, like Bernard McFadden and some of the physical culture magazines are digitized now. Like the only time there is a black, Indian, African-American um, person in those magazines is usually the like exotic native, you know, or the orientalist kind of KVIR and Indian physical culturist. He submits images to physical culture and it's kind of like, look at what the Indians are doing. But it's very much from a kind of eugenist lens or it's comparing skull sizes or, you know, talking about what the unfeathered natives do rather, you know, who aren't corrupted by civilization. So I think it's interesting that you've really pulled the constructed nature of whiteness to the forefront, which reading your book, you're like, oh, well, obviously that is the that is the core assumption in a lot of these uh, workouts and exercise programs in the United States. I think a really excellent example of that, which again, you touch on is Dudley Allen Sargent. So I'm wondering if maybe you could explain A, who Dudley Allen Sargent is, B, what he did, um, and then C, maybe how he fit into your book. Because I think he's a really interesting example of the, like, I'm going to say medical with a small M on one side, the medical field and the field of physical education, physical culture on the other hand. Right. I, I I kind of love and hate Dudley Allen Sargent too, as a, in part because he's sort of like the foil to Bernard McFadden. And and um, even though Bernard McFadden totally wrote article, there are articles in physical culture about Dudley Allen Sargent and the great work that he does. But then out in the same breath, you know, Bernard, Bernard McFadden is like, academic physical culture programs are terrible and they they're elitist and awful. So Dudley Allen Sargent, uh, right, was the the sort of director of um, physical culture at Harvard for an extended amount of time um, and is sort of one of, I guess, sort of the big two or the big three physical culture um, um, teachers in the Ivy Leagues uh, uh, at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and uh, you know, his, the thing that he's sort of known for uh, is measuring thousands and thousands and thousands of college student of bodies during that time and, and basically establishing a norm. Um, so if you think about all the times that we measure ourselves in order to, you know, figure out what our fitness is, that's, that's really like Dudley Allen Sargent's 
gig, um, except that he doesn't just measure like, oh, well, what is, you know, chest and thigh and hip and waist, um, you know, he, had so many different measurements that he asked for from bodies that like a costume designer would blush. Um, like it's, 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 it's so detailed. And then, um, you know, he's really intense about the fact that he doesn't actually look at the average, he looks at the mean. And so um, uh, he's in a lot of his writings, he asserts that because he looks at the mean instead of the average, he actually has a clearer sense of what the ideal body should be and the numbers that the ideal body should sort of of hit the crazy part is is that he he became this sort of emblem of like elite ivy league you know physical education directors um and he had no sort of credentials to be in the ivy league at all um he you know had a background really similar to bernard mcfadden he had a rural upbringing in maine um, and then, you know, and like Bernard McFadden, like he was in the circus for a while. He had a trapeze act that he would do. Um, and then he was at Bowdoin, I think for a while in Maine. And then he got this gig at Harvard and it was never a really comfortable fit for him. I mean, I think to talk about performance again, I mean, I think that he sort of, my dogs are gonna bark again. Cause oh, you're fine, don't worry. <laughs> um, he, uh, uh, had a really uncomfortable sense that he had to perform against his sort of rural working class roots. And there are times when, you know, you read interviews with him where he's doing that really well and he's positioning himself as this expert um, in the field. But the other thing is, is that when he got his sort of expertise in medicine, you know, part of Bernard McFadden's argument against medicine was that medicine was still just sort of a crackpot discipline at the end of the 19th century. You know, it was still trying to get its act together and figure out how it was going to consolidate its power and become a, a, a discipline. And so you could go and like buy your medical degree from the University of Phoenix-ish kind of thing like at that time. And so, you know, uh, uh, there's this weird positioning of D Dudley Allen Sargent as this kind of like credentialed elite Ivy League um, person who whose you know words had weight in a way that Bernard McFadden's didn't when really on paper the difference between the two of them was was not much. Yeah I think that's such a important distinction to make because one of the interesting things is as you say Sargent builds this credibility because he's saying I'm measuring thousands you know by the end of his career I've measured thousands of male and female bodies I'm studying the mean and I'm helping people get to a more perfectible state of health. So he kind of utilizes this like language of medicine and science. Whereas Bernard McFadden is saying like, if you fast, if you, you know, that will cure cancer. If you pull on your hair, that will stop you going bald. Like he's very much out there and he's criticizing the medical profession. But as you say, both of them establish authority in the realm of health with very little actual credentials. And that's such a key theme that reoccurs again and again in the 1800s is that these people who by dint of having an amazing body or having amazing strength or measuring other people's bodies and claiming you know i've created a system which will improve people you they almost built up their credibility mm -hmm. without any sort of credentials which as a historian i really admire and wish i'd done rather than grad school <laughs> it's interesting though because they're kind of at the forefront of 
public messaging and a lot of them are kind of shysters like at the same time and the way that they come to us too right like sergeant has entire colleges named after him and bernard mcfadden is really just considered this sort of weird hack you know, who happened to be able to build a media empire. Um, I mean, by and large, now there are lots of sort of redemption arc narratives of, of, of McFadden as well, but by and large, he's sort of seen as like a P.T. Barnum kind of huckstery like figure, whereas, you know, Sergeant, as I open that, that chapter with, has has a college named named after him. And, you know, the difference between even going to the archives for Sergeant at Harvard and what I was able to access in terms of his material and what I was not allowed to access, um, right? So Sergeant was such a huge proponent of anthropometry, which was the measuring of, of bodies, which was by and large is now considered to be a part of that racist mechanism of eugenics at the time. Um, he took countless pictures of naked subjects um, that are still you know, archived at, at Harvard that I was not allowed to have um, um, access to. And, and since then, it's crazy, right? Because um, um, Harvard also has multiple sort of archives full of pictures of slaves and those, the descendants of those folks have successfully sued Harvard to get that material um, um, back. But right, that whereas like Bernard McFadden trying, you know, <laughs> the Stark archive has like the biggest amount of sort of McFadden material that you can access. And the only other place that I found is I did go to the AMA archives in Chicago. Um, but of course, the, the material they have is, is in it, this huge file that the AMA was trying to assemble in order to get the FBI to arrest and jail McFadden. So it's, it's got a sort of different kind of, of lens to it. But the fact that, you know, historically, those two figures are really seen in, in completely different ways. And, and, you know, again, on paper, there, there just really wasn't much distinguishing them. They had very similar stories, very similar paths. Absolutely, I think the um, like the way everything comes together is so fascinating because I think part of the strength of this eugenics movement, especially in the U.S., you know, looking at kind of reinforcing whiteness and improving white male and female bodies, is the chorus of people who are saying these things. You have, you know, President. Roosevelt talking about the need for a strenuous life and the need to be, you know, physically active because this will make you a better person, almost like a muscular Christian ideal. But he's only talking about white bodies. You have Sergeant in this quasi medical but physical culture role. You have Bernard McFadden. Like there's such confidence placed in physical activity and physical exercise as a antidote for perceived ills at that time. I think it's so interesting. I don't know what your, your thoughts on it, but to me, the faith that is placed in weight training and calisthenics in terms of, well, if we build the bodies up, everything else will kind of fall into place. And that has lasting ramifications, I think, throughout the 1900s. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think that part of that rhetoric is that at the, 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 at the time, the trying to distinguish between sort of popular rhetoric like McFadden's um, and, and more quote unquote legitimate rhetoric like Sargent's, the line between those two for the people consuming it was really thin. <laughs> um, that, that uh, uh, you know, um, 
going from from sort of sergeant saying things like look you have to have regular repeated exercise that works all of your muscles sort of sort of equally in order to correct these these deficiencies um, at the same time that you know you have McFadden saying crazy things like you need to go out and take a snow bath um, but then also saying, you know, come in and eat some carrots and why don't you try some vegetables, which is totally like, yes, you, you should do those things that um, um, there was almost like a, a, such a buffet of potential options that something that seemed legitimate one day could just be totally fake news the next day, not to like bring that in, but that was, that was another thing that, um, you know, trying to sort of, especially with McFadden, you know, not be like, he was like Donald Trump, <laughs> but not. And, and, and that sort of way in which uh, they could create places for themselves in this nascent um, sort of field um, based primarily on good press. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and uh, um, you know, getting their name out there. And, and again, that the, the sort of contrast I bring up, I think at the beginning of the Bernard McFadden chapter that, you know, both Dudley Allen Sargent and Bernard McFadden were at that 1893 World's Fair. Um, it's just one was in like the Hall of Sciences and Arts and the other one was like next to the carousel and the popcorn stand and, um, uh, that, that I think, you know, it, the hardest thing to negotiate is that physical culture was so many different things in so many different places that trying not to jump down rabbit holes, like um, in my volume, you know, somebody writes about boxers who did vaudeville boxing matches um, because that's how they could make money when, you know, they weren't allowed to, or couldn't, couldn't set up matches that, um, the intertwining of, of sort of popular performance and physical culture, but then also the kind of scientization of, of the medical field and how it tied itself to physical culture and especially like the Swedish uh, calisthenics as, as a potential cure um, and the way in which physical culture was mobilized to distinguish between, oh, well, there's body work in order to show your body, that's bad. You, that's you know what you really need to do is this other work that requires more time and money um but will make you healthier yeah. um, and watching those distinctions sort of hit the ground um so to speak in this time uh uh it was really fascinating yeah, i was just gonna say i'm so happy you mentioned uh, money because it's such an important part of the story is the commercialization of whiteness and white you know in, improving or solidifying one's white male or female body i think it's so interesting you know so mcfadden has books magazines workout materials diets he has a restaurant where you can buy a cheap healthy meal where apparently the bread was very stale so he like he's very much out front and center he's criticizing the american medical association the ama if you've already talked about you know and he's saying they're shysters but if you buy my carrot juice book or my physical culture cookbook everything will be fine but then you also have Dudley Allen Sargent, who he is part of the kind of nascent wave of American physical education, but he falls out with some people in that movement because he's patenting his own workout devices. And they're saying, well, if physical education is for the good of everyone, and by that they mean the white race, you shouldn't be patenting. Like that goes against, like doctors, I think um, one of the physical educationists, Golik, says, you know, doctors don't patent 
their treatments so why should physical educationists patent theirs but sergeant is saying i've created it it's mine it'll help people so commercialization is such a driving force of this in terms of or it seems to be such a driving force of this in terms of either having exhibitions but then also selling you a medical treatment be it a workout or a piece of equipment well, and it's interesting, right, because I'm thinking about Sargent's um, autobiography, um, which is really the, the, the sort of thrust of his autobiography is Harvard prevented me from making money off of this thing that I invented. And it was really frustrating. And I don't like them. And then, you know, and, and questioning the like, it was perfectly fine for him to, to create this other sort of commercial avenue, which is that you know, he basically created the first like degree factory for kind of physical directors, physical culture directors in the U.S. You know, like there, it it you can't <laughs> you can't spit in the early 19th century and not hit a physical director who hadn't gone through Sergeant Summer's school for physical education. I mean, it it's um, so on the one hand, right, that kind of commercial success, which I'm sure Harvard benefited from hugely, because you better believe those folks were paying money for that, um, was totally fine. Um, but, you know, Harvard was super mad that he tried to pull out his high wire act on a rocking chair at one exhibition. And they said, you can't ever do that again. Um, and, and they didn't want him to profit off of a patent because, right, that and and that that's happening at the same time that Harvard is actually trying to establish itself as this elite institution, which now is a sort of foregone conclusion, but at, at the time it was it was not. And so they also have sort of skin in that game in terms of ensuring that their employees are, are doing what they want. And what's really interesting, and, and at some point there's an article there, right, that the person who occupied the job of, of sort of physical director at Harvard before Dudley Allen Sargent was a black man named Mayu um, who, who oversaw all, all of that. And again, like huge old gap in the, in the archive, not readily accessible to find out about Mayu. Um, um, but, you know, that they were using Sargent in order to create what they wanted Sargent and that program to be. Um, that I don't think they necessarily had any idea when they hired him, which is why I don't think his credentials actually had to be like amazing when they hired him. But by the time he left, um, right, he, he and they sort of created this elitism, I think, in, in physical education and higher ed. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting to see how through the prism of we're improving the white race, so many careers and institutions and professions. And, you know, I teach in the Department of Kinesiology, so I'm under no illusions, the origins of kinesiology, you know, where they all stem from. So I suppose as we're starting to wind down, because I thought I had a lot of meetings today, but you've way, <laughs> you've, you've, you've blown me, you know, completely out of the water in terms of comparing uh, Zoom meetings today. I suppose what was maybe the most interesting or unexpected finding on this research? And is there anything that we should, we should have talked about uh, that I neglected to ask? Um, I mean, I, I think that, that um, I, I could never, and I never could quite sort out, um, uh, and I did a lot of work here, but I, I didn't really get it into the book the way, the way that I wanted. What actually happened when physical education did move um, into um, places that were non-white? You know, so I have, I have a book on the origins of, of physical education at Howard, um, um, and, and the fact that 
so many of those were primarily sports driven, right? That um, physical education um, sort of fell out of those places. So the places were like finding out that, you know, Sergeant's um, predecessor was a black man, um, um, finding out actually how many black physical educators did come out of Sergeant's um, um, summer summer school. Um, I think that there's a, a, a big fat glaring hole in sort of, sports and physical culture historiography in terms of the impact on communities of color um, at, the, at the, those times. And in particular, I think what sports, um, although there's been a lot more about what sports meant to sort of early those communities of color um, in the US at, at, at that time, um, you know, really sorting out uh, uh, and digging into to those um, places is something that I'm really interested in. Um, Del Sart is the weirdest thing. Um, and uh, we have this Del Sart archive at LSU that I didn't even know that we had until we got here, uh, until I got here. Um, and so I'm really interested in Del Sart because Del Sart is also a really easy um, uh, connection between theater and, and physical culture. Like it exists in both textbooks uh, uh, to a certain extent. Um, and then I guess, uh, you know, just as the, the kind of thing that, that um, you know, has come up as we're talking that I, that I haven't gotten to mention, right, is that, um, you know, in, in my volume, I have an article about CrossFit and, and how complicated and actually empowering and, and surprised I was by being a practitioner of CrossFit how much better it made me feel, how much I, I really enjoyed the sort of ethos of it and, and trying to sort of balance that with the fact that I'm like, there are white supremacist gems, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like um, uh, uh, that, that are sort of using this ethos in, to, in order to um, promote this and, and yikes. So how do we sit in that place of like, gosh, this is great and I really am all into this. Um, and oh my gosh, I could see this going in the exact opposite direction for all the wrong reasons. Um, um, so quickly and certainly right right now um, that 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 is the thing that I, I keep thinking about and the downfall of CrossFit that 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 right part of what took CrossFit down was that their owner um, you know put out racist tweets so um, th this sticks around uh, uh, and is a kind of theme that underscores so much of of the primary resources here it hasn't gone away. Yeah, and I think I completely echo the tension you feel between like, so in a different life, I've done two natural bodybuilding shows. Like I love working out, but at the same time, there's always that inherent, like there's a lot of problems in this field and it's attached to a lot of problematic groups. And I always find ethnographic work so fascinating because it's usually people find that tension between, I feel great, but there's also this racial element, there's also this gendered element, there's also this class element, a religious element, sexual element that I think oftentimes people don't explore or uncover. And again, why I'm so grateful for you and your work is it really, as I said, it drags you kicking and screaming back to the place of this is good. You know, it had good elements, but at the same time, racial fitness, racial ideology, class sexism, you know, gender identities were firmly rooted in the origins of this and i think what's so clever in the concluding chapter you show us that you know these haven't gone away you know they've they've gotten different names they've gotten different titles but the the impetus emphasis 
part of me still exists. So at that point, Shannon, I want to thank you so much. Um, for people who are interested again, it's eugenics and physical culture performance in the progressive era. And Shannon's also mentioned, she's also edited another book called Sporting Performance, Politics in Play. Uh, one published in 2020, the other published in 2021, making all of us feel awful. Uh, <laughs> no, they were both published in 2020, actually. Oh, like- sorry, 2020. <laughs> Oh, it's good someone was productive uh, in 2020. So Shannon, I'll give you the final word, but I'll just say thank you so much. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, this was awesome. I, this was like my best part of my day. Thank you very much. So for everyone else, um, Jeff or myself will be back soon with another podcast. And on that note, uh, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.